Welcome to Shelter, a series of conversations about home, place, and refuge, from where we find it and how we choose it, or perhaps how it chooses us, to where it can be lost and what lies at the core of this fundamental human need. Looking beyond sticks and bricks, this show's aim is to explore larger, more complex ideas related to our lives in a society that is more mobile and fluid, but arguably less rooted. So here we'll talk about great freedoms and alternative lifestyles, but we'll also dig into the stark realities of home because this, well, this is all part of the stew that we're in together. I'm your host, Erin Sweeney. Hello, world. Thanks for tuning in. I'm so excited to share this first episode of Shelter and wanted to set the stage with some real talk with a woman who has taken the road less traveled and taken it by storm in her 25-foot flying cloud airstream. So meet Lauren Lazardo, a storyteller, data lover, and money boss, a financial maven who left her career in the Bay Area five years ago to start her own business and take it on the road. And Lauren is also the author of the Chicanamista Report, a newsletter which began with a focus on women and money and has since evolved into a resource for aspiring to well-established lady entrepreneurs. And in our conversation, we talk about her trajectory over the past five years uh, and some of the discoveries and realities and everything in between of life on the road. So thanks for listening. Hello, it's nice to be here. Welcome to Shelter. I'm excited. This is very exciting. <laughs> First one. Lauren, let's talk about what happened in 2012. What you were doing when you were living in the Bay Area and how things started to shift for you. Mm. So in 2012, I was at the tail end of a very grown-up job running a fairly large company. I was the I think my official title was the chief administrative officer and uh, I spent about three a little almost three years there before I was just burnt out and tired and done with working for other people I realized uh, that I'm a very bad employee <laughs> that <laughs> I really didn't want to be an employee anymore. So I decided that it was time to go off and be on my own. And I wasn't quite sure what that looked like or where I was going to go or what I was going to do. But I knew that I wasn't, didn't want to work for anyone else. I want to work for myself. So I took my skill set, which at the time was general business management and decided to start my own consulting practice. And I opened up shop. You know, you had been in the Bay Area for a while at that point. And you knew that you wanted to do this, but you wanted to be mobile. Yeah, I didn't quite, I knew that I didn't want to be in the Bay Area anymore. I knew that I didn't want to be in a big city anymore. I didn't want the rush of it. I was, the Bay Area had really turned into, it was, you know, dot com 2.0. <laughs> and it was very mm -hmm. busy and crazy. And I didn't feel healthy or good there anymore. And I wanted to live a much smaller, much more simplified life. So as you referenced earlier, one of the first things that I did was I started to sell all my things. 
and I didn't know where I was going or what I was doing, but I knew that I just needed to get rid of stuff. Uh, so I literally posted one thing on Craigslist and everything was sold from there. A guy walked in and said, I want, are you also selling your stereo? And I said, sure. <laughs> and I just kept selling. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, and all of this is available, in fact, in this apartment. And he bought half my stuff because he was furnishing, I think, his son's apartment. And so at I that point, done. did you have, did you have a moment of panic? No, I, I had done? a no, I had a complete moment of freedom. I just, it was hmm. very exciting to just kind of get rid of these things that I had been holding on to for many years. They had traveled with me all over. They'd been in various storage units and it just felt good to get rid of things. Again, I didn't know what I was doing or where I was going, but I knew that I needed a much lighter load than what I had. And at what point did you start to think about the Airstream? Oh, the Airstream came in much later. So I originally had started researching. When I started to sell things, I started to research different places that I could go, different ways that I could be living. And I looked at, at the time, I was looking at road treks. Do you know what a road trek is? <laughs> uh, no. No. <laughs> it sounds like a... No. <laughs> Roof rack. It, it's a super tricked out van that you can live out of, uh, or that it's kind of like a mobile home, but it's a van. And I was really into them and I researched and I looked at them and every time I kind of mentioned it to family or friends, they looked at me like I was crazy. And so I backed off from the idea They, you know, they kind of got into my brain. They, they got into my spirit about doing this adventure travel. So at the time I just decided I'll sell all my things and I moved into my, I moved everything into the storage unit and I packed up my car. I had a really tiny storage unit and I had my car. That was all I was allowed in terms of real estate. And for six months, I actually lived out of my car and I couch surfed between friends and family and hotels. You know, the car was full, the trunk, the uh, sport racks up top, and then the, my back seat had things in it for about six months. Yep. That's what I did. And then at that point, I met, uh, I, I had roamed around. I thought maybe I would buy something or maybe I would, you know, move to another urban area or maybe I would live in a small town, but nothing felt right. So I just kind of kept driving around and cruising around. And then I went on a writing retreat and met a, a woman who is a professional and super sweet, super normal. <laughs> super amazing and shook one look at me and she said oh you I live in an airstream and you need to live in an airstream too and I said <laughs> I said what what's an air you know what's I had I knew what an airstream was I was like there's people that really do it I mean I had read about them and I had uh long looked at kind of these smaller stories that I had seen in magazines about these people but they were they were like unicorns and I finally met someone who did it and she was very grounded and had a professional life and um, we just shared a lot in common and she said you should check it out and that was in March 2013 I think it was March 2013 and uh, no it was March 2014 pardon me I'd been wandering around for a while at that point and by May 2014 uh, I found an Airstream and bought it and I hit it I, I hit you, it for about... You hit it. Yes. 
I because couldn't. you didn't want anyone to know that you had I, taken the plunge. Yeah, like, I didn't want anyone to know. I felt were... yes, I felt a lot of shame around it, but I also felt a lot of excitement about it. The only person that really knew, my friend Allie knew, she was in the car when I made the purchase, um, and my brother because I at the time I I wasn't able to go actually see the airstream. Uh, I had to send him and my nieces to go look at it, and they went and looked at it, and <laughs> and they called my brother called me and said there's still shrink wrap on the toilet and on the microwave. If you don't buy this, I'm going to. <laughs> and it was a smashing yeah, deal because, because it was used. It was considered quote unquote used, but the couple had bought it, took it off the lot, and then left it in warm storage and brought it back, and they upgraded. So. Hmm. It was an amazing so it was deal. the best possible scenario for buying something where you're, yeah, you're you're taking a huge leap, but it's not like buying a brand new. I don't know. I feel like it is a bit softer in terms of the the entry, maybe into the the airstream set. Absolutely, you know, it is a big plunge financially. They're not cheap trailers by any means, uh, and of course the you know the the economic. Or the financial part of me thought, what if you don't like this and you buy something brand new, you drive it off the lot that depreciates by X amount? <laughs> you know, I ran through the calculations. And so finding a brand new used trailer, let alone an Airstream, was a very, is that was a big deal. I felt like I couldn't not buy it at that point. You know, once you bought it and you started to let people know, like I feel like I was aware early on of what you were doing um, and have been living vicariously, you know, in a way there's, I think there've been a lot of people that have been sort of following your journey during this time, you know, so now it's been for the past, what? Four, yeah. Three four years. <laughs> years. And the, the premise of this, this podcast and kind of talking about different lifestyles and opportunities for people to rethink traditional modes of living and traveling and, and how to create a life and, and, um, you know, sort of just find that balance as you need it. It, it's been, it must be interesting to always have that engagement from people. There's so many elements that are really fascinating about it. Um, so how did you, like in the first few months, you like pick this thing up off the lot and then what did you do? Oh, I had no idea what to do with it. I had <laughs> I had bought it and I didn't even have a tow vehicle. I didn't even know. I knew nothing. I didn't know uh, how to evaluate a tow vehicle, what was proper to pull the trailer. I didn't know about, you know, hitches or any of the technicalities of what it meant to tow something this large. Um so I started to do, I did a lot of research. So I bought it in May and I was on the internet every day for 10 hours a day, researching and figuring out what to do. And this is where my Montana friend who I had met in March, who told me this is what I needed to do. <laughs> this is where she was very key. Uh, and the internet was incredibly helpful and kind to me because one of the one of the cool things about the Airstream community is that there's no shortage of information on what to do and how to take care of things and you know everything from opinions about tow vehicles to equipment that you need or starter you know starter setup that you need to get going so I went on a mad 
purchasing spree for about, I bought it in May and I didn't pick it up until July. So between May and July, I bought a truck, all the gear that I needed. And on top of that, in that time, I got rid of what was left in my storage unit in California. It was like the next phase of the purging. Yeah, I had this very intense moment in when I came back from California. I had just, I bought the truck in California. So it went well with closing out my uh, storage unit down there. And I brought the rest of what I had up to the Pacific Northwest, up to Portland. And really what all I had brought back with me was important paperwork that I didn't know what to do with. And one afternoon I shredded about 10 banker boxes of papers of elementary school, college notes <laughs> and letters and cards and old college papers and bank statements from 1995. And I actually, I <laughs> yes, full disclosure. Yes. <laughs> this is where I have to say that I, Lauren and I have known each other for a very long time. And I remember, I remember this, this period when the shredding was happening and, and like the sheer glee of liberation. It was either everything was being shredded or it was being digitized. Yes. And absolutely. you were, you were just like, I, yeah. And how good you felt <laughs> letting that, go of that. Yes. I, you know, that's a, that's a great point that you bring up about the digitizing because the digitizing was one of the first things that I did. I, all of my music digitized it. All my books I got rid of and bought Kindle versions if they were really important. And then mementos and things like from those 10 banker boxes, if they meant something to me or they were, there was a lot of sentimental value, I would take, I took a picture of them of the bits. And I'm huh. sure there were plenty of things from our college years that I took pictures of. Uh, and they'd be That's in there funny. saved. But Glee, so then you, you have, have it right. Gone. You have those things that we, huh, the objects that are sort of of value of memory, then you were turning that into an image but it wasn't a no it was no longer a physical object but it doesn't really matter cuz you just have the thing to trigger the memory so yeah it doesn't that your thinking is is right on but still i hold on it's so hard for me to let go of those and i think for a lot of people that's part of the accumulation of of stuff is because like wanting to be surrounded by these things that are are signs of the life we've lived Oh, yeah. It's a big leap of trust in yourself to remember and to hold those tight and know that mm. you have taken the meaning from them that you're supposed to. Truly. I mean, I believe yeah. that about especially about stuff that just because I don't have that memory, that physical memory anymore, doesn't mean that it didn't happen in my life. Mm. Right. And I and I hold that yeah. and I know that's in my heart, whether or not I remember the exact memory or the exact whatever it was that happened. I know that all of that's in me and the bits and the pieces are nice reminders, but they're not required because they're already embedded in me somewhere, somehow in my heart, mm -hmm. in my experiences, and it plays out somehow in how I move forward in life. But it took me a long you time to get also... there. 
there's a some you have received some gifts on the road, I believe as well. <laughs> I have if received I some gifts. Correctly. <laughs> I have I've received numerous gifts on the road. Um I've received a lot of consumables in there's this small beach town that I stay at in on the Oregon coast in Garibaldi and I remember someone someone left me uh bacon from a from a pig that he sourced <laughs> wow. and it was one of the best it was like a parting gift he left it in the middle of the night and I woke up the next morning and there was fresh bacon on my doorstep and I thought that that was probably one of my best gifts um wow. ooh, I got I've gotten Sam you know the people in that same area have caught a lot of salmon and have left me fish a lot of consumables Lots of uh, well, bottles very, of alcohol. There's. This is also interesting to me because there's the element of, you know, traveling and meeting people that are on vacation. You know, they're. Yeah. You're talking about being on the Oregon coast and being in some of these places where there's this interesting mix of those that are there for tourism and then those that are. What's the term for it when someone is living in that way? In um, the way that I am? The Airstream pack. I know there's like a language around it. Oh, home is where you if, park it. That's I'm thinking of the hashtag on Instagram. Forgive me. <laughs> yeah, full Which, timer. Oh no, you're a full, okay. you're a full I, timer. Yes, a full timer. And when I yes. actually, but when I follow your Instagram and I see those hashtags, it seems like that is that is also very much part of it too. That duality and and being in a place where you are interacting with people, I think that there's like the fascination that's from those that are are just enjoying, you know, maybe a week on the coast and then having this neighborly like experience in terms of how you interact with people that are sort of passing through or mm -hmm. then there's those that are also passing through that are full timers, but they're like passing through for longer periods of time. Right. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know that because of that, um, most of the time you come across a lot of, well, most of the people are on vacation. There's not, a lot of us out there that are just living full time, working and and traveling on the road. Most of them are, are retired or are on a family vacation. And I think because of that, you come across people are just happy everywhere you go. <laughs> <laughs> so going back to the gifts, it's I think that's the that's the reason I so many things are left behind. They're just so happy. They just want to give away their abundance. It's very sweet. Yeah. I think you saw the, um, hmm. remember the light that I got? <laughs> well, to be honest, that's the, what I was thinking of. <laughs> I know. Everyone thinks it was the most inconvenient gift I had gotten. It was my first time trailering out. And that was the gift I was given, which who knew that people put that in their the back of their trucks and carried around as gifts for people that they meet. But it was rather okay, large. so... Yeah, we need to, to describe give our it. audience a little background. I had the pleasure of traveling with Lauren um, in her in her airstream uh, last. It was last year for about a week. We traveled up and around the Olympic Peninsula, up in Washington State. And um, as we were traveling, I was on the daily, just in <laughs> awe at how Lauren was driving and parking, maneuvering the truck and trailer, but then beyond that, specifically in her kitchen, she mm. was also like making amazing food and the way that she kind of buttoned down the hatches before we would take off. It was all really 
efficient and well done. And we ate well. It was amazing. We did eat well. But this light that she received was <laughs> like this sculpture. So the first time I trailered out, um, I met this couple who was sitting next to me and their daughter was also traveling with them and she was in her own trailer. And they must have felt my newbie excitement. And they couldn't stop asking questions. And they had never really seen an Airstream. So they wanted to come in and they wanted to check it out, which then I loved. I was so giddy over, fast forward two years, I'm not so giddy over the number of people that want to come in and look. (laughs) But then I was very (laughs) excited. And they, they said, can we come in and look? And I said, absolutely, come in and look. And they opened all my cupboards and they looked around and they said, come over. I, I ha- we have things that will help you organize this. And of course I get over to the, I go next door, I get into their trailer and they have all these uh, baskets and organizers that fit perfectly in my cupboards. <laughs> it was so random. So they give me all these baskets to keep my glasses in place and keep my silverware in order and keep my dishes secure. And it was amazing. And it was very sweet. Speaking of gifts, that was probably one of the best gifts I had ever received. Uh, And then on top of that, Mm -hmm. they said, please come back over for a drink for happy hour. Um, We've taken up so much of your time. They're so kind. And I I said, oh, I'm going to finish working and I'll come back over. And I finished working. I went back over and they said, we have one more gift for you. (laughs) We're just so (laughs) proud of you. And we're so impressed of what you're doing. I wish we would have done it when we were your age and we just didn't have the the courage and we're just so proud of you and tell your mom and your friends they should be proud of you. They gave me this very heartwarming talk and they hand me this bottle with a, it was almost like a driftwood base, like big circle, right? I would say is about six inches in diameter. You think? Yeah. Six inches in diameter. I would say. And a solid. Yeah, maybe even a little wider. Yeah, let's say eight inches. Let's. I don't want to be like sure. a fisherman. <laughs> it was 12 inches of solid oak. It was about eight inches. <laughs> it was about eight inches. It was round. And on top of it was this big, very thick bottle. It reminds me of the bottles that you would build those ships in, the model ships yeah. that you pull up, right? Is that, do you, would you characterize it as that? And yeah, like sh- it, it was it was ship in a bottle style, very yeah. very marine kind of uh, kitschy, very yes. kitschy coastal, yeah, very coastal. And he strung fiber optic lights through it, and it was really big, and it was glass, and it was wood, and it took up a lot of space in my 25 foot trailer that I had just said nothing gets to come nothing gets to come into the trailer if it doesn't serve two at least two purposes it better if three and so I get this uh this very sweet gift from this elderly couple that are so proud of me and they just happen to be carrying it in their truck and it's the biggest thing ever I mean at the time it felt like the biggest thing ever because I didn't have anything in the trailer except for empty and then this six inch wood base with this big bottle that I'm supposed to carry around with me in my trailer. Right. Which you did. Fall I mean, and apart, you, which and I you, did. Yeah. Do you still have it? No, you know, I that same trip that you were with me on, I brought you know, it's always been this funny conversation piece and I would bring it out and 
I brought it out when my friend Paulo was there and him and his friend Matt were like, dude, it's time to let it go. You know, you've let go of so many things. You have a wonderful memory. Do you have a picture of it? And I was like, I have a picture of it. And Paulo said, you can keep one piece of that. And I took out the string of uh, fiber optic lights and I still have those. Yeah. But the rest of it went away. I don't even remember what I did with it. I think I probably had the boys just take it away because it it broke my heart a little because it just represented the beginning of my travels and just that immense pride that I felt for taking this huge step. But it was also time yeah, because that you... thing was like rolling around. <laughs> in that, I know. Of times. I think when, <laughs> when I was traveling with you, I think it, it was in the kitchen sink or something. We were trying to find a place for it to <laughs> kind of live while we... <laughs> <laughs> it never fit anywhere. It normally traveled on my bed as I was traveling around. But it yeah, lit up and it was real it's... fun. It was a good conversation piece, but it was time for it to go. And yeah. let it go is sort of in keeping with the spirit of the of the trailer in general. Absolutely. Yeah. And I have the, mm. you know, those lights are very sweet. They I turn them on every once in a while and I remember that sweet speech and that sweet couple. So... I want to shift gears a little bit and just talking mm-hmm. about, you know, you're mentioning being in these different places and, and working while you're traveling and, mm-hmm. you know, maintaining a pretty, uh, you know, I think, uh, at times like a pretty intense schedule, um, how you manage to sort of stay connected and, and what that's been like in the process of the past few years of honing in on, on how you want to work as you're living in this way mm-hmm. or just in general. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, and when you say stay connected, do you mean to friends, to people, to the internet? <laughs> what do you uh, mean by to, stay to connected? The interweb, to the Google machine. <laughs> to the Google. I, I mean, I, I was actually thinking more in terms of technology and staying connected, but actually, I mean, it's both. I think Mm -hmm. that's a huge part of it too, though, that I want to talk about is there's a reality of being mobile and then how you're, you know, you're working remotely, how you're able to, to support yourself, how you are Mm -hmm. maintaining contact with clients and how you kind of, you know, are able to um, keep that going. But then... You're not rooted in one place to, to have the ability to to have those contacts with your loved ones and yeah. you know your your circle. So I guess both. Yeah. Is so the you know, the yeah. first thing that kinda comes to mind that I'm thinking of is that when I first decided to do this, I had this very grandiose vision of you know climbing mountains and <laughs> seeing amazing things during the day and working all night and I would just fit it all in somehow and I even think that at the beginning I said I'm going to do this for one year and Mm. I'm going to see the all of the United States and I'm going to do all these things and reality set in very quickly when you are working full-time from the road what you have left over is what you have left over as if you were living in a, in sticks and bricks. That's what that's what us full-timers right. call <laughs> regular living. You, that's what you would call me. I'm living in uh, sticks and bricks. Oh yeah, you're in sticks and bricks. Um <laughs> that's exactly what we would call. You. Oh, she's a sticks and bricks person. So if you were living huh. in, in the same way that you struggle with figuring out how you're 
going to take a yoga class in the afternoon. It was the same thing for me. Um, or it, it has been the same thing for me. I work a lot of hours. I work regular, you know, eight to five, if that's sometimes a little bit more. And so finding that, so finding that time to get out and explore the area that I'm in, that I was in or am in really was a challenge. And I realized very quickly, you know, I, I think in my brain, I thought I would, you know, go to somewhere new every week. But the reality is, is it's better to stick around for a month because that's you then you get your weekends and sometimes your evenings to go explore the outer areas. You just can't fit it all in in one week and work a regular job. So that was my first okay. kind of that was very grounding for me. Um, the longer you stay in an area, the more you have to explore. And then I expanded that from I then kind of changed it up and I said, OK, I'll stay somewhere for a month or two and I can explore up to three hours away from this area. Where have you been? Like where the... That was another thing that I had to adjust to. So I thought, I'm going to drive across the United States. I made it as far as... So I've been spending the majority of my time in the Pacific Northwest. I started in Portland. Uh, and then I went to the Oregon coast. And I have been exploring everything between the Oregon coast to western Montana. Uh, that's as... I've been on the road for, I think, what did we say, three years now, four years, almost four yeah. years. And if you really, you know, I really wanted quality time in the places that I was at. And I also wanted to allow for spontaneous living. You know, if I went somewhere and thought that I was only going to stay a week, uh, there were many times that I thought I was only going to stay a week and I ended up staying for a month or two and then would loop mm -hmm. back to that place. Because I think I figured out pretty quickly uh, that you just you can't get to know somewhere in a week. It's like a person, right? When you meet someone that you really like, you can't just know them in two conversations. <laughs> and that's a little bit what started to happen with me in these places that I would go visit. I thought I went up to Anacortes for one week and I stayed for three months because then I got to explore all wow. the San Juan Islands. I got to explore all of Whidbey Island. I got to hike every day in these beautiful areas um, and I just, and I like that I could allow for that time. A lot of this living on the road has been about being spontaneous and honoring whatever it is that I felt like I needed. And a lot of times what I needed was to just explore places that I really was enamored by. I was talking to someone recently who, um, we were having a conversation just about the nature of place and mm. the he was talking about his relationship to a certain city saying how there's something about his relationship with that city that feels like you know it's a relationship with a person and mm. I think I've since been kind of considering that more and just in terms of how you how you yeah meet a place and it can be a very similar sort of thing you know you kind of you you fall in love with it and then you maybe you start to you know, find your natural rhythm in that place. And uh, I just think it's a really beautiful idea. Yeah. I think place is a person. It really is. I mean, I love that hmm. analogy. It is. You learn to love somewhere and you also learn to not like it. <laughs> you know, I think that when you, right. 
arrive somewhere and you're so, you know, in some ways it's like this, uh, you fall in love very quickly and it's very, it's a very round experience to both love it and hate it all at once. Mm. I feel like once I, once I know that, um, then I know that I've really gotten to know somewhere and I feel very complete. I always have the saying that when you know, yeah, you're like, I don't like this aspect of it, but it makes it feel more real. Like you have a, a fuller understanding of it. Yeah. You see all sides of it. Yeah. Right. I always say that, uh, if someone loves me all the time, then I'm not doing a very good job at being myself. And I think of that as a place <laughs> to, right? Like if you always love me, then I have not been authentic with you. <laughs> Truth. And I and I see that about place as well. You know, a true place will show you all their sides. Um, mm. And I and I if you're willing that. to embrace it in that way. Which yeah, I, think I mean, that rough edges, certain... rough edges, and all is what I say. Bring it. Yeah. You can't love something mm. all and the time. In in that vein, there's mm-hmm. well, there's the question about community that I also want to talk about in terms of the way that you have, you know, in the past few years, maybe this experience has expanded what your notion of that is or just shifted it. Um, but you're also, I mean, in terms of what you're encountering, you're going to places that are more conservative um, mm. and you're sort of coming in as a, you know, you're, you're passing through, but you're spending enough time there where it's not like you're just, passing through on vacation, I mean, you're, you're getting to know the place. And I think it's speaking to that idea of certain elements that are challenging, right. Yeah. In terms of, of what you're seeing. Um, but it's a really valuable perspective as you're traveling through, has it challenged or expanded the way you mm. think about just, I don't know, maybe local politics. <laughs> yeah. All of the above, all of the above. Yeah. I, you know, I grew up in, I don't, yeah, I grew up in urban areas. I've spent, I shouldn't say I grew up, I spent the majority of my life in urban areas uh, where there's a lot of diversity, there's a lot of acceptance, there is a lot of love. Um, and it's been, it shaped a lot of me and how I see the world. And so, you know, the other part of me is that I did spend time in, you know, Yakima, Central Washington, and the Palm the, Springs of the, Washington. The Palm Springs of Washington. Shout out to the Palm Springs of Washington, uh, where it is a very a pretty rural, small town community. And so I've had some exposure, but my trailer travels have really been centered around small town living and seeing everything off of the West Coast. And like I said, I I only made it as far as Montana, and I haven't even gone that far east. Like, that's as far east as I've made it with the trailer. And I guess I dipped down into Wyoming a couple times. But a little dip. Yeah, a little bit. All that said is, um, you know, I've spent a lot of time in small towns, and seeing the world away from an urban environment is something that I think everyone should do. I think that it's a really important thing because I don't believe that my, you know, I don't believe that my urban friends have a good grasp on what's happening in the rest of the United States. And this has certainly been Mm. very eye-opening for me and very sobering 
in many ways. Uh, since and we're the, on the period of time, the period of time in which you started traveling, it's a really interesting period. You know, you started traveling during a time when Obama was president, and I think that there was a lot more liberal politics, and then the shift from that to what's happening now with the Trump presidency. And, and you really have been experiencing that, you know, mm. in these different places. And I think for most people, like their experience is, is rooted in the place that they live and maybe they're, you know, they're mm-hmm. traveling, but it's, it keeps coming back to the same thing. Whereas I think, I guess you've spent a lot of time, you know, in, in more, in more recent time, like in, in Washington, I would say largely. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, you know, I I guess they don't know, pod, the folks listening don't know that I am uh, five foot <laughs> tall. Yeah, this is, this is Barely. good. Let's this, give is, some this is part of it, right? This is, I'm a five foot tall Filipino. No, I'm not, fi- I'm only five feet tall with, with heels. Let's be clear about that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I need to be honest. Uh, Filipino, and I'm also bald. And uh, I hang out with a trailer and a big truck. And I'm sure if you don't know me, I'm quite the sight. And I've had plenty of commentary at the gas station. Like, whoa, didn't expect any of that. <laughs> you know, when I get, when I get out also, to pump. With your beautiful bald head. Yes. And coming into that. Because I feel like there's something about when you decided to start shaving your head, like telling people what alopecia is, because I think yes. that that's something that's important to know. Oh, alopecia. Alopecia affects 1% of the population. It's, con- it's classified as an autoimmune disorder where your immune system attacks your hair. And so your hair falls out and there's no rhyme or reason. There is no control over it. You just lose your hair. And my, I had it when I was a child and then I had it, I got it again our senior year of college and uh, it started for over a period of five years my hair fell out it came back at one point and then six months later it all started to fall and at that point I had decided to shave it so for 15 years over 15 years I've been I've been bald and I have tufts of hair that come in but I, I shave them so I cruise the world as a bald brown woman, which is something. And I mean, it's, I think it's, um, it's part of the reason I, I talk about that background is namely because I think that there's something that's really powerful about the way that you, you know, I think you wrestled for a period of time with how that, how that like looked, you know, but also how it affected your identity. And then you really got to the point where you, just embraced it for everything that it it was and could be in terms of just like owning who you were and being mm. this like beautiful bald headed brown <laughs> woman and you know like the interactions that you would have with people like sometimes when you know I have been with you and other stories that you've told me about it's just like the reactions that that pulls out of people you know it's I think it's something yeah. that maybe strangely you know is parallel to this this experience of 
of the the leap that you've made and kind of choices mm. you've made in terms of embracing this lifestyle that's more it's it's like it is courageous you know mm-hmm. to do what you've done and I think also to own this be like this is my body this is who I am and I am gonna rock this and yeah. um I've always really I've always really admired that about you oh thanks Erin that's yeah. very sweet to hear uh, yeah you know it has in so many ways I wouldn't be where I am today had I not kind of fought through being a bald woman in this world right um but it's also I think that it was really it was it's been fine to be a bald lady walking this world up until probably the last year I would say um I've had Mm. far more I've had incredible experiences I've disarmed a lot of people they don't really know what to do with me we always like to tell the story about I've been pulled over eight times speeding seven seven of them I've never gotten a ticket only once have I gotten a ticket I attribute it to the bald head um because they don't know what to do cops don't know what to do with me but so they kill me with kindness it's very sweet Uh, but really the you know the baldness I didn't resent the baldness until the last year until Trump came into office truly I think that this is the first time this last year is the first time that I I actually received some very negative feedback. You know, I wonder what, you know, from behind me, I've heard, do you think that's a she or a he? Do you think they know? I think, no, the way that he, the way he phrased it was, do you think it knows if it is a he or a she? Um, and then and followed by that and they're like she she probably or his she she he probably says ching chong ching chong ching chong <laughs> you know uh and that's like wow, wow people are really empowered to tell me what they think of me you know it's been a real reconciliation to have such an incredible experience for 15 years that yes i've had some weird moments with people but never have i experienced this much hate um and i don't know if it's yeah it's hate it's true hate people really want to tell you what they think of you and that's that's well, been probably th- the most I telling think people thing. feel like they have they have the liberty to do that in a way that they haven't for i mean i don't know for very long time ever perhaps ever i've yeah. never felt like this is and traveling you know when when the election was happening. I kept traveling further and further east. I ended, you know, during the election time, I was in northwestern Montana. Uh, and I was in Whitefish, which is the a small blue dot in northwestern Montana. And uh, it's also the home of Richard Spencer. Do you know who Richard Spencer is? <laughs> founder of Richard National Spencer Bio. is... He's the, he basically is a white the founder, nationalist, Yeah, no? white nationalist. Exactly. That was his, that was his town. Uh, and it was so fascinating because I'd been there many times before between Missoula and Whitefish and never had I felt the kind of eyes, the searing eyes that I had felt, uh, then at that time, at the, in that time period, I, I really felt like people thought something of me or were putting something on me. I was many times I was running and I would, uh, feel like, wow, I, kind of feel like I could be a victim of a hate crime in this area. And I had never, I had traveled through there. I'd been there three or four times before that. And I'd never felt like that. 
but and I don't know that I hmm. if I was exaggerating it or what I was feeling, but I, I I don't think that I was too far off. People thought something of me, and they were they were very fascinated by the fact that I was a brown lady, brown bald lady, yeah, running around. But it I never felt it until I'm a I'm a lot more concerned about traveling um, than I was a year ago or a year and a half ago. Now I'm I'm a, a little bit more cautious. You know, so you're a, a number of years in and you are still committed to the lifestyle, but mm-hmm. how do you look at it now moving forward? I am a lot more careful. Uh, I think yeah. I love the, the trailering community, I think, is probably one of the best communities I've ever been a part of. There is no such thing as class or color or anything. It's been very, very sweet. Um but I am I'm I, I'm rethinking it, and I don't know what that looks like moving forward. But one of the one of the first things that uh, my brother had said right when I got the trailer was, "So when are you getting a gun?" And I laughed at him. Mm. It was always kind of this joke. And and Heidi, my other trailering friend, same thing. So do you have a gun? You know, it was this very funny thing. I'm like, hey, people are so paranoid. I've come all I've come across are the nicest people, the best people. <laughs> And they couldn't be more far off from needing a gun. I don't, you know, I didn't even, I have this bat in my trailer that everyone would make fun of. It was like my kind of feeble attempt at saying that I had a (laughs) self-defense weapon in my trailer. Uh, And never have I felt the need to use it. Never have I felt uh, in danger until this year. And so this is, this is the, it changed in that I got a gun Um, just because, I know, statistically speaking, just looking at the news, just knowing that the rise in hate crimes are happening, that I'm not as safe as I used to be. Um, so, yeah, it has changed things. And I think that I'll still continue to go to small towns. I'm going to err on the side of of trusting people and believing in the good of people. But I'm also very acutely aware that there is a whole, you know, albeit probably a very small faction of folks that feel quite empowered to express their hate. Uh, and it, hmm. I, I don't feel comfortable being out there and not protecting myself or being able well, to protect myself. You know, looking at that, maybe in the same way that once you buy in a trailer, like I wouldn't even know where to begin with thinking about the need to defend yourself and wanting to have that, you know, also like, what do you get? How do you, <laughs> how do you decide that? How do I decide what kind of gun to get or how do I decide how to defend myself? (laughs) Yeah. Well, uh, the gun, I spent time at the shooting range with my brother and I had, I did a bunch of research, just like when I was buying the trailer, I did a bunch of research for the kind of what would be the most versatile weapon that I could have or need and what could I handle for my size. And that was how I all... That was how I kind of came to the conclusion of what I needed, which is not anything super robust um, and something that I can handle and something that has safety features. And, uh, you know, along with the gun ownership comes a lot of both practice and learning. I'm going through a lot of training right now. Uh, I would never assume that I have to use it, but I want to be responsible and I want to be thoughtful and trained well 
to use it if I ever do need to. You know, this happened relatively recently. Mm-hmm. So it was also, you know, not too long before the massacre happened in Las mm. Vegas and, and talking about gun ownership rights and mm-hmm. gun control laws. And you're, you're approaching it from the perspective of, of a very practical adult that's like doing your homework. <laughs> and um, it's just, it's really touchy right now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the U.S. is, the U.S. has a gun problem. There's no doubt. I'm not naive and I'm not blind to that. There's a problem. Um, and it was, you know, when I was buying, it was during the, it was right when I had purchased was the, during the Las Vegas massacre or shooting, how are they referring to it? I don't know. I just refer to it as mass shooting. Yeah. Yeah, Mass shooting. Seemed. I don't want to be insensitive, but yeah, no, it was right when I was buying it was, was in that time and yeah, guns are complicated. Um, and there is, you know, the better the gun laws, the safer the people are. And that's, I mean, where I feel like the U.S. really does fall apart is this yeah. inconsistency and this lack of knowing. You know, in the state of Washington, you can get a conceal and carry permit and get a gun with no training. And I just, hmm. I don't even, I don't understand that in any way, shape, or form. I'm responsible. So I go and I do it and I sign up for the courses and I am getting all the training and all the practice time that I'm, I should be getting to get comfortable and to be responsible with it. But there are people that can get guns and, and not have any of that. And that, that's astounding to me for something so violent. Right. Yeah talking about this issue, which is heavy. I mean, I think it's like a, it's a heavy decision to make to do that, Yeah, but Very heavy. it's also indicative of, you know, the, the reality of how you started sort of this journey and, you know, you went into it in a way that was very much like, okay, I'm like, you're saying I'm going to climb mountains every day and, <laughs> and I'm going to like work all night. And then, you know, you, you're far enough in where you're like, this is this is something that I'm committed to, but I'm also being realistic about what I'm experiencing in the world around me. And, and I think that there's something about it that's both sobering, but it's also inspiring in that you're embracing all of that. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, doing it, doing it in a way where it's, it's easy. I think especially right now, I hear people so often talking about how, um, they just sort of dismiss a lot of what's happening, not because they don't care, but I think it's so much that it's, uh, I can't even deal with that. And and so you just sort of continue with your yeah. daily life and being in a, especially being in a, a, a blue town, you know, and like a blue state. And, and we've talked some about how you travel through these places and what your responsibility is. And if you want that responsibility to engage with people, to open their Mm -hmm. eyes to things that they wouldn't necessarily have the opportunity to talk about otherwise, or, you know, on the flip side of that, it's also just to be very aware of how you need to protect yourself. And yeah. 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 You know, I think the majority of the time people come from a place of curiosity, they've never seen a Filipino before. You know, the, the question that I've received a few times out on the road is what kind of Chinese are you? Hmm. (laughs) And wow. it doesn't, and it doesn't come from a bad place. 
it comes from, I've never seen an Asian person before and I only know Chinese. Um, you know, and I, I, it's, it's just, it's a very fascinating thing to me because I wonder if they didn't have this conversation with me, would they hate me or what would they think of me or what are they thinking of me when I walk in? Right? You don't know. Right. But then they, maybe they find the courage to ask a question or, or share what they think of, of Asians with me. And it's always an opportunity to discuss and chat with them. And by no means do I love educating. But in these small urban towns, the thing that I always remember is that, or these small rural towns, excuse me, uh, the things that I, the thing that I always remember is their their view of diversity is where crime happens, right? Like mm-hmm. urban centers are where that's where all the colored people are, and that's where all the crime happens. Uh, what they don't understand is that's where all the that's where it's all coming to a head. All the systemic racism is coming to a head. And they don't ever have exposure to that. What they're concerned about is their, um, you know, they don't, if they call the police, it takes them a half hour to an hour to come out to their house. So they need protection to deal with that. Right. So the, it's right. just such a funny, when you step back and get into their, into their situation, it's a gen, it's genuine concern and it's genuine, um, yeah, creating creating your safe space and maybe in places like I was just talking with someone a couple of days ago about just the experience of living in New York, for example, is just you're all in each other's midst all the time. There are like certain things that New Yorkers will do for each other, not because I mean, <laughs> it's like you see someone on the subway and they're like having a really hard time. Maybe they just you need to give them a you give them a tissue or something. I don't know. You're just like, oh, I know we've all been there. We're all in it together. And, and but you don't have you don't have the the luxury of that space. And and so I think someone's in a situation where they're trying to really be more a little more isolated with space to protect themselves. Then there's a little more fear there in in a in a different way. Yeah, the um, fear the fear is but real it's good to think for of both it as sides. Curiosity. I think curious to be to. Consider his curiosity is a really good way to perceive that. Yeah. Curious is the best word. They Mm. don't know. Both sides don't know. We're all in urban. Yeah. We need more urban people in rural areas is what I say. I want to have a study abroad. College students in urban areas need to study abroad in rural areas. If they're not from a rural area already. A little more cross-pollination. I mean, cross-pollination in the United States in general is just, there's not enough of it. You know, yeah. there's a lot of, there's a lot of ignorance, quote unquote, on both sides, for sure. And but these travels have certainly informed and opened my eyes to a lot of that stuff that, I mean, I really am, there are moments when I really do feel like an elitist liberal who owns a gun and drives a truck. Right. Yeah, you're you're an, you're an amazing combination of things. You're... Yeah, and who believes in tax reform? So I don't know what to do with me, Aaron. But there it is. Shelter is proudly and independently produced in New York City. 
This interview was recorded in October 2017 between my Brooklyn studio and Lauren Lazardo's Airstream, parked somewhere near the Palm Springs of Washington. Our music was contributed by Pascal Tremel, and you can find more of his music under the moniker Birdie Hilltop. Find more information at aaronsweeneystudio.com slash shelter, including a link to subscribe to Lauren's Chicanamista report. Until next time. <laughs>